0: Well, um, we're kicking off 1 Thessalonians today. I mean, last week we kind of launched into 1 Thessalonians, but not really. We were looking at the book of Acts and the surrounding circumstances related to 1 Thessalonians, when it was planted, how it was planted. And so if you missed that, I encourage you to go back and, and listen to that. Welcome to all of you who are visiting for the first time, by the way. And so as we look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, we want to wrestle with this idea of what does being a follower of Jesus look like on the ground? In other words, what is Christianity supposed to be all about versus how it's often perceived? Because in our country, um, you know, it's very easy to just be what I call a census Christian. Um, that's, in other words, you're a Christian because you're not a Buddhist or you're a Christian because you're not a Muslim You're a Christian because you're not an atheist. And that's very common. You just kind of check that box on the form, and that's what it means to be a Christian, so to say. But as we look at Paul's writings, Paul who wrote about half the New Testament. He was a kind of murdering Christians and then became a follower of Christ. One of the major themes that we see in much of Paul's writings and here in 1 Thessalonians very clearly is this theme of faith and love and hope. And each of these things, if you think about it, they can be misunderstood under the umbrella of census Christianity, or what sometimes we call churchianity, or maybe loving your religion instead of loving God. And what I mean by that is you can have faith, you can claim to have faith without having any evidence of faith. And you can claim to have love without having proof of love, and you can claim to have hope, but nobody can see it. In other words, people can say things all the time. They say, well, I'm a spiritual person. I have faith. But their life doesn't seem to value things of spiritual substance. Or people can say things like, I love her or I love him, speaking of their spouse. But when you watch them interact, you think about how poorly they actually treat each other and how selfish they are. Or we can say things like, I have hope. I have hope, I have hope in God, but then we panic at every trial and every difficulty. And so the question that we want to wrestle with today is, is this what God expects, or are we missing something in our faith, love, and hope? And so that's what we're going to look at as we look at this chapter. Let's begin verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you, and peace. So one of the first things I want you to realize here in this passage, and maybe you remember from last week as we looked at the book of Acts, is that notice that Paul, counter to many of his other letters, he elevates Silvanus, which is another name for Silas and Timothy, by including them in his greeting. Typically, Paul would only introduce himself And then at the end of the letter, he would say, you know, Silas and Timothy also greet you. But that's not what Paul does here. He elevates them. And so why in this book versus in his other writings? If you remember, Paul had to leave Thessalonica in haste, and then he sent Timothy from Athens to go to them and to check on them. And Timothy then met up with Paul in Corinth for a debrief. And so there's a sense, as we read through this letter, where the Thessalonians were a little miffed that Paul hadn't come himself. And so you realize that even back then, 2,000 years ago, people would get attached to a certain personality. In this case, it was Paul. And so by elevating Silas and Timothy as a we, he tries to posture them so as not just substitutes for Paul when he's not around, but as valued co-laborers. And this is an important piece because one of the things we realize is that Paul was an expert at developing leaders. And this is an important leadership concept for us to grasp. You see, leadership in the body of Christ isn't a pyramid where you have one person on top and then everybody else is beneath him. Instead, it is a plurality of leaders that serve the body. And so for those of us who are developing leaders, and now remember, you're always going to be developing leaders whether you like it or not. Your kids, your employees, your discipleship group leader, potentials who are in your group, as you think about developing leaders, it's important to remember that you posture people and position them as leaders in reality and not just in theory. This is one of the reasons why we have other people preach when I'm here and not just when I'm on vacation because they're not just substitutes for Bill when Bill is busy. They are valued members, value leaders. They're co-laborers. Paul does very much the same thing here with his greetings. Verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope In our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Paul, in this first section, basically he tells them, he thinks of them fondly as he prays for them. This is why he prays for them. And then he reminds them of how they came to faith. And here he says, When we pray for you, we are always reflecting on your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope. This is the triad, the DNA of the Christian life that is so core to Paul. But I want you to realize that in each of the terms of this triad, faith, love, and hope, we see here a root and a fruit. Faith is the root, but then the fruit is a work. He says it's a work of faith. Love is the root, but he says it's a labor of love. In other words, love gives birth to labor, faith gives birth to work, and hope gives birth to steadfastness. See, faith is the bedrock of all that we are, without which the scripture says it is impossible to please God, that you can't please God by your works. God is only pleased by faith. Paul goes as far in Romans to say anything that is not done from faith is sin. Faith is to be sure and certain of which is unseen. And in this case, What is unseen but what we cling to by faith is that Jesus is who he says he is, that Jesus did what he claimed to do, and that Jesus is coming again to judge and to reign as king. Faith is the root, faith in the gospel, but it results in work. Now, this is a consistent theme throughout the scriptures. We see in Ephesians chapter 2, 1 to 11, this great passage that describes the gospel in these terms of being dead and then being brought to life. And it culminates in verse 10 where he says, Paul says, God created good works in advance for you to do that you may walk in them. And so this rebirth from faith leads into work. James says that faith without work is dead. In other words, we are saved by faith alone in what Jesus Christ has accomplished because it's his work. But the reformers said our faith is an active faith. It's an active faith. Faith spurs us to action the same way that Jesus' faith in the, in the fact that God the Father would raise him from the dead spurred him to go willingly to the cross. Believing that God the Father would raise him from the dead, he willingly walks to the cross for the joy set before him. That's faith in action. Faith in action. Love is what defines a believer today or what should define a believer today. Love is what defines how a believer, a follower of Jesus, interacts with the world around him, with one another, and with God. Love leads to action the same way that faith leads to action because love is the outpouring of the character of God in the world around us. We love God vertically, the scripture says, by doing what? By obeying him obedience is God's love language we obey God and we love God that's what Jesus said if you love me you will obey me if you keep my commands you will remain in my love that is how we primarily demonstrate our love for God but it's obedience that is birthed out of faith not obedience that is birthed out of sweat we love one another within the body of Christ specifically by serving one another by encouraging one another, by forgiving one another, by putting, literally in in Ephesians chapter 4, by putting up with one another. This is how we love one another, by being reconciled with other believers, not by running every time there's conflict. That's not the kind of love that should define God's people. And we show love to the world by preaching the good news. We show love to the world by pointing out darkness, but then by showing the way of light. Love results in labor. You see, you can be dutiful and obedient without being loving. The devil is obedient to God the Father, but he has an absence of delight and love. Demons obeyed Jesus, but they had no delight in the Son of Man. And they had no love in their heart for God the Father. Don't mistake duty with love that gives birth to labor and obedience. There's a difference between the two. Having been forgiven, though, and having known great love, now God's people are called to be defined by love. Perhaps the ultimate barometer. Of your life today, what God expects from you day to day to day is not how much you're willing to sacrifice or how much you know or how, what a great orator you are, but as Paul says, the greatest of these is love. This thing remains at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And so the question on our hearts constantly should be, am I loving those around me? Am I loving those around me? And finally, hope. You see, if faith is the foundation of our past transformation, and if love defines who we are today, hope defines our expectation from the future. Hope is the posture of anticipation that gives us confidence to face today and tomorrow because we have an eager expectation of what is on the horizon in Jesus. See, hope is not this kind of wistful, I hope it doesn't rain. I hope the gnats aren't bad at two mile. Like, that's not what hope is about. Hope is an eager expectation of something that is promised. Abraham, from a foundation of faith, looked forward with hope to the fulfillment of God's promise to him. Moses, from a foundation of faith, looked over the Red Sea with hope that God would accomplish what he said he would accomplish. These things are interchanged. We have hope now as well in the return of Christ. 2 Timothy 4.8 says, This is Paul's final letter. He says, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. This is all hope for for Paul. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. This life is fleeting, this world is fleeting. And often Paul defines those who are defined by hope as those who lovingly anticipate the return of Christ. I would just want to challenge you. It's not in my notes. If you don't lovingly anticipate the return of Christ, that's a problem. Because it means that we love the things of the world more than the things that are to come. What is to come is greater, even than the greatest things today. And so as you look at the DNA of a believer, according to Paul, we stand by faith alone. We, we are saved by grace alone through God's provision on the cross in Jesus Christ, who was the, the sacrifice for the satisfaction of the wrath of God to cover our sin, to pay for our sin. And that leads us as recipients of his grace to work to live today a life defined by love, love for God vertically, love for our neighbor. We have two accountabilities, a vertical accountability and a horizontal accountability. And this love causes us to labor for one another instead of just laboring for ourselves. And we look forward to the future with hope, knowing that regardless of what may assail us today, we know there is, as the scripture says, a far country— Ahead of us that is greater. And this should cause us to live differently today with a different perspective. The point is this, guys. Faith, love, and hope always lead to action. Faith, love, and hope always lead to action. And as Paul reflects... On his brief time, remember, Paul was with them for maybe four weeks. As he reflects upon his brief time with them, this is what he remembers about them. He remembers their faith as seen in works. He remembers their love as seen in labor. And he remembers their hope as seen as steadfastness in the midst of persecution. Can you imagine if that's how Revolve was defined or the church in Cape May County was defined? That people said the church of Cape May County is a church that is defined by this faith-driven work and this labor of love and this eager expectation and grit that seizes them because of their hope in Jesus faith not from works or religion or ritual but because of the living christ love not anger or resent or bitterness or infighting or backstabbing or gossip but love and hope not nail-biting panic and worry and anxiety and giving ourselves ulcers but hope in the face of death and if not death and definitely danger today and so in light of these things this is what paul says in verse 4 For we know, in other words, I remember these things because we know, brothers, loved by God, he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So what is Paul getting at? He's saying, what was the evidence of your faith, love, and hope? The evidence of your faith, love, and hope was a changed life. That when we came and we preached the good news of a coming king, a resurrected king, a slaughtered king, and a promised king. When we came and preached that to you, you responded to that good news of the gospel in action. And we saw visible change within you in four weeks. We saw a visible change within you. And because of this change, I know God has truly worked in you. And that means you are elected or chosen. That's what he says here. And you say, well, what does that mean? Don't get so hung up on these concepts. It means that God did the work in you first, not the other way around. See, salvation isn't about the Titanic sinking and Leonardo DiCaprio's hanging onto a raft and it's so cold, right? That's not, and then someone just needs to grab and pull him out of the water. No, that's not salvation. Salvation is like the Titanic now, however many years later, at 13,500 feet down, right? And then pulling up some carcasses from, what, over 100 years ago and then bringing them to life. That's salvation. And the point is that God initiates it. You were dead, not mostly dead. You didn't need Miracle Max, okay? You were dead fully. And this is important in Thessalonians because the people were afraid that somehow they would mess up their salvation. For example, we're going to see later in the book, they were afraid if they died before Jesus' return, then that meant they would miss it. He's like, well, he didn't make the cut. Sorry. And so that was a legitimate fear that they had in their heart. And Paul wants to remind them that if God elected them, if God worked in them, if if this is Jesus' work and not their work, and if this is evidenced by the Holy Spirit working in you in power, I want to reassure you that you should have no fear. You should have no fear of the future because he who began a good work in you will bring it to the day of completion, Philippians 1.6. And what Paul says, he says, what is the evidence of this divine act? He says it is that you heard the gospel, that the gospel worked in you in power of the Holy Spirit, and that there was evidence of conviction of sin and repentance as a response. That's the evidence that God was on the move. But then he continues. The second part of verse five, he says, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, not the joy of being an idiot, the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia." So what is the evidence? What is the evidence Paul is pointing to? This is important. The evidence is that they imitated Paul as Paul imitated Jesus. We call this in the hub duckling discipleship, that whenever you see a mama and her little ducks, they're always going in a row. Everybody's following the mama duck, and then there's a duck leading and a duck following, and they make a little, a little line there, and it's cute. All right? Don't judge me. I said it's cute. They imitated the faith, love, and hope of Paul because true faith leads to true love, which leads to true hope, and all of these things lead to action. Now, specifically, what does Paul say they did? He says, you imitated my response to what? Affliction. You imitated my response to suffering, to affliction, and it wasn't with joy that comes from from being a little slow. It was joy that comes from the Holy Spirit, just as Paul had done, just as Silas had done, just as Timothy had done. Now listen to this. So amazing was their faithful suffering that they became an example to the other believers in Macedonia. So if you think back to last week's sermon, that's the Philippians, the Bereans, and the surrounding area, and in Achaia, okay? Now listen, Achaia is 300 miles from Thessaloniki, pre-internet, okay? Now I want you to think about that. You see, we are moved by stories of heroic sacrifice. You know, many people remember the stories from ISIS when they were beheading Christians in North Africa and the Middle East. We listened to, if maybe some of you have read The Insanity of God, and you think about stories of believers in Iran under Soviet rule, in China, in Nigeria, in northern India, and on and on and on. And we are moved by those stories of resilience and joy within trial. And we respect it when we hear stories about missionaries from the days of old, you know, leaving the United States to go to Ecuador and get killed by tribal people like Nate Saint. In some weird way, martyrdom is extremely inspiring. And I think perhaps most obviously because it reminds us of Jesus. Indeed, in the flesh, it is hard to imagine something more Christ-like than laying down your life in obedience to the Father. As a matter of fact, the book of Revelation says there's a special place under the throne of God for the martyrs. Now, as we think about their faith, don't you want the kind of faith that stands as a testimony worthy of imitation? I mean, I do. That's the kind of faith Paul had. Wouldn't you be proud in Christ, not in your flesh? Paul says he boasts only in Christ. Wouldn't you be proud in Christ to be part of a local church in a community that was so steadfast in their trials that people in Roanoke, Virginia, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and Boston heard about them not because of the internet, but through word of mouth? That's crazy. And this is exactly the situation that was happening. And all of this after only a month of time spent with Paul and his band of merry men. You see, the point is this. This has nothing to do with Paul. This is why Paul says that the Holy Spirit came in power and with full conviction. This is God on the move. This has to do with the fact that the God came not only in word but in power And that always leads to change. Verse 8. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves... Report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turn to God from idols, that's repentance, to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. See, Paul comes full circle to faith, hope, and love. What Paul is doing here is he's thanking God for the Thessalonians and he's reminding them of their own testimony of the way God worked within them. The visible evidence of salvation that not only he saw, but people 300 miles away heard about because it was true and genuine. And so they can rest assured for those who have those evidences in their own future, in their labor of love, and in their faith in Jesus. Because all across Greece, people had heard about the Thessalonian church. In obedience to the gospel and the life-changing power of the Holy Spirit, there was visible evidence of their faith. They turned away from idols to God. There was visible evidence of their love. They served the living and true God and one another, as we're going to see. And there was visible evidence of their hope because Paul says they were eagerly awaiting the son's return. Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. I just finished a book this past week called Discipleship and Conversion. Can't have one without the other by a guy named Bill Hull, who's a pastor and an author. He's, um, he, I think he oversees the Bonhoeffer Project, if any of you have stumbled on that website. Very Bonhoeffer-influenced. Um, that might mean nothing to some of you guys, but... Anyway, here's a quote that really struck me. We judge ourselves based upon our intentions. Isn't that true? We judge ourselves based upon our intentions, but other people judge us based upon what? Our actions. We judge ourselves based upon our intentions, but others judge us based upon our actions. People knew of the Thessalonians not because they had good intentions, but because they didn't just learn about Jesus or hope to obey Jesus or think about imitating Paul, but they had faith, love, and hope that changed them so much so that the rest of Greece heard about it through the grapevine. That's remarkable. The point is this. Faith, love, and hope lead to action. And when people see change in you, they see Jesus more clearly. And that type of life is inspiring to other believers. Paul thanks God for the Thessalonian church because he knows they are true believers as evidenced by their faith, love, and hope. And that's what this section is really all about. Paul praying for them and reminding them that he believes their faith in Jesus is real as evidenced by their changed life. You know, some of you are here today and you wonder where you stand with Jesus. Some of you are here today and you generally wonder. You wonder if, although you go to church, when you go to heaven, you'll die. And Paul writes these things, die forever, I mean. And Paul writes these things in part to reveal evidence of salvation. And for Paul, he's saying the evidence of salvation is faith and love and hope. Faith, that you have placed your faith in Jesus. Have you placed your faith in Jesus alone to save you from your sins? Or are you still trusting in Jesus plus church? Or Jesus plus good deeds? Or Jesus plus, have you surrendered to Jesus? Or are you committed to Christianity? There's a big difference between those two things, surrendering to a king or being committed to Christianity. Do you look at your life and feel like you love God and love people more today than you did a year ago, five years ago, ten years ago? There should be visible evidence of a growing love in your spirit and hope. Do you look at your life since you claim to have come to faith and see that in the midst of trial and difficulty and persecution, you are panicking less, but growing in steadfastness? Each of these things, by the way, are scalable, right? Like Mother Teresa loved people more than I do, all right? But I love people more today than I did 20 years ago, as hard as that is to fathom, okay? (laughs) Okay? The point is these things do grow. And so we don't, we don't compare ourselves to one another. We compare ourselves to Christ and how he's changed us over the years. So at your tables, take a couple minutes to talk and pray through those prompts on your sheet as you think about your faith, your love, and your hope. And ask the Lord to reveal to you these things either for confidence or for conviction.